Hello and thank you for joining us. Welcome to Zooming In on Hate, a podcast series that brings together the brightest minds to figure out solutions to hate speech, disinformation and radicalization. We regularly speak to various voices from tech, from civil society, law enforcement and policymakers to identify and analyse the latest social media trends to help us understand the situation a little bit better. And this podcast is part of the European Observatory of Online Hate, or EOOH in short. And in this edition, we will be delving into the European Media Freedom Act. My name is Lydia Elkouri, and I'm with TechScan. And my name is Jordi Nijnhuis, and I'm from Dare to be Grey. So today we're delighted to be joined by Rita Janusheite from EU Disinfo Lab as an advocacy coordinator. Rita, thanks so much for joining us today on Zooming In on Hate. Thanks a lot for having me. It's a great honor and I'm very excited to have this conversation with you today. Brilliant. So if for any of our listeners don't know about the EU Disinfo Lab, will you tell us a bit about the work you do and uh, generally and you specifically, please? Uh, yes, fantastic. Um, so I'll start with uh, telling you that EU Disinfo Lab is a non-profit organization. We are based in Brussels and our work could be categorized, I would say, into three main pillars. So we do research. We have a, a research team as such that is monitoring disinformation narratives, trends, really link, looking into what's happening in, in that space and uh, and, and trying to sort of draw conclusions that could also inform uh, policy-making process as such. And then um, our team also does research that is based on open source, so OSINT investigations. Maybe some of the listeners have had the chance to encounter some of this uh, research. For example, one of the more known and also one of the most recent ones uh, a research uh, OSINT investigation uh, named uh, Doppelganger that essentially um, unveiled um, uh, the, the media, European media, well-known me media being impersonated by disinformation actors uh, and different techniques that were, that were applied there um, and a number of other investigations. Again, if, if, if people would love to see a bit more in detail what kind of uh, investigations we have done in the past. I think it would be great for them to check our website. Um, but I mentioned there are three pillars. So <laughs> uh, the second pillar is focused on building community the, and, and, and bringing together counter disinformation experts. We do that through I would say one of the biggest and most important events for the organization throughout the year, which is our annual conference. Um, and then we also have a newsletter that we put out there every two weeks. Uh, and we try to, again, bring the, the, the most important news when it comes to counter disinformation work, research, policy updates, things, things like that. And the third pillar, is, is specifically focused on, on the policy advocacy work. That's what I'm doing specifically in the organization. And the aim of it is to help to build a proper regulatory framework that would be able to address disinformation challenges as such. 
That that sounds like uh, impressive, but also very important work. Um, why is it so important, according to you, to focus on these topics? I'm sure that all of our listeners hopefully understand that there, there is some urgency here. Um, but according to you, what kind of challenges are you facing? Why, why is this mm -hmm. so important to focus on? Um, so I think it's important to understand that this information challenge is not something that you can address unilaterally, looking at only one side of a problem. And for that, you need to understand the information ecosystem with different stakeholders that play there via the role of a policy making in it. Um, and, and you need all these elements to work together. That's why I was mentioning the, the, the three different uh, pillars. The key challenge, though, is the support that civil society is receiving to do this work. Um, there is essentially um, a lack of sustainable continuous core funding to do such activities, meaning the, the core funding from the EU. Because in a, this is creating a lot of financial instability, um, especially if you take into consideration the fact that a lot of funding that has been coming over the years to the counter-disinformation community from abroad, like from foundations in the US and the UK, this is decreasing, and then the EU is not providing that core funding. In addition to other challenges that the community is experiencing, like uh, you know needing to deal with slaps, somehow slaps... If you, if you listen to the conversations around it, is portrayed as the issue that mainly journalists are facing, but actually no. A lot of civil society organizations are experiencing that, and especially a lot of them in the counter-disinformation community. Um, uh, the online harassment, a significant challenge, um, online violence, cyber attacks, this is also something that is not often covered, and that's a significant challenge. And all of this needs to be addressed through proper support, financial, different tools, mechanisms. Also, you know, not not mentioning, uh, but, but often, but it's very important to address the mental health challenges that people working in the community are experiencing. All of it needs support. Essentially, you know. You need to support those who are defending democracy if you actually want to defend democracy. And that's what uh, what the community is doing. That's what the organizations like UDisinfoLab are doing, despite all the challenges uh, that we are currently facing operating in this very, very hostile environment. Thank you. And for I had no idea that slaps were used on the countering disinfo community as well. For for any of our listeners who don't know what slaps are, will you just give us a, a rough a rough uh, idea of what that involves? So essentially, um, bringing lawsuits against organizations, usually on on completely illegitimate grounds. The purpose of it is not really to. Um, to end the process in a way that, you know, you, you pay a fine or whatever. But the key thing is to intimidate the community from doing the work, what they do, what we do, to, to make sure that because these processes are lengthy, tiring, cost a lot of money, even if you win the court case, that you would be, when you assess the risks, you would be like, no, maybe I'm not going to do that because somebody might try to to you know, take me to court because of this or that being said, because exposing this bad actor. 
And that's essentially the key tactic, trying to discourage the community from doing this work, unfortunately. And, you know, increasingly being taken as, as, as one, of the, one of the tactics and, and, and unfortunately working quite well because more and more of the organizations are limiting themselves in their work because of the risks of slaps and other things that I mentioned, you know, online harassment, violence, cyber attacks, etc. And that obviously feeds into the lack of core funding and creates a, an even more negative cycle, I suppose, for, for organizations. And I'm sure any civil society organizations listening into you will have been nodding vociferously about the lack of core funding and financial instability. It's it is um, yeah, yeah, exactly. very, very difficult. The thing is, just to add on that, the thing is often that it's not understood that the uh, you know some organizations get let's say EU project funding. It's not understood that this funding is not able to cover these issues and 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 these costs. You can't apply European funding that you got to write let's say a report or do an investigation to actually fight the slab back. <laughs> yeah. you, you can't justify it in your expense report to the commission. Without core yeah. funding, we are not able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. No, I've never seen a budget line with potential slap, a contingency budget, but we might have started something, Rita, by mentioning it today. Um, now, I want to jump on to a topic that is on the tip of everybody's tongue at the moment, which is the Digital Services Act or the DSA to uh, us people who have to say that word, say those three words so often. So what kind of an impact do you think it's going to have on our community, Rita? So we do hope that it's going to have a substantial impact. We have seen a user redress mechanism um, adopted in the DSA that would allow to complain when platforms decide not to act on content that was flagged. Um, and that essentially could be a game changer for the community and take a lot of frustration that has been building over the years because essentially you would not be able to do anything before if, let's say, you flagged a piece of disinformation and then you know you just see that the platform is not is not taking any action, and, and you would be like, oh well, okay, uh, <laughs> nothing to do. You can't necessarily force them to to do anything. But now, because of the DSA, um, a user, including anybody in the community, um, you know, researching disinformation, following key trends, etc. Whenever they notice a piece of disinformation, a campaign happening, would be able to flag. Nothing is being done interpret it as a decision by the platform not to not to take action and challenge that decision. And then the next step after after that, if you get back still from the platform a response that, you know, we kind of hold our decision and we, we think we still shouldn't moderate this piece of content, there is a third element that you can do, which is, um, taking to out-of-court dispute settlement body that would then be this impartial body which decides who is between you and the platform right in, in that case. And that's, even though the decision as such is, is non-binding, but at least the two sides should engage in it. That's, that's already a step forward and incredibly important for the community given that 
disinformation as such, in most cases, um, is a non-illegal content. So you wouldn't necessarily have an option which other users have when it comes to, to illegal content to bring it in front of courts. So in most cases, community can't do that. But here you have so internal complaint mechanism plus out-of-court dispute mechanism. So there are ways how to challenge platforms in action when it comes to, to disinformation. Um, but also other things that probably listeners, if they follow at least teeny tiny bit the discussions around the DSA have already heard, especially when it comes to biggest platforms, so the, the systemic risk assessments and risk mitigation measures to put in place that would cover also disinformation normally, that should have a substantial impact if done right, if implemented right. Um, also, that is linking to auditing processes and data access for vetted researchers. Essentially, community that is doing um, research uh, on how platforms are dealing with disinformation as a systemic risk will be able to request specific access to data and verify that they are implementing the risk mitigation measures that they are supposed and, uh, and you know, sort of complying with responsibilities under the DSA. Um, essentially, for the community, it will allow them to it will allow them, it will allow us to look into, in, into what's happening in the platforms to, to, to help to look under the hood. Um, yeah, so basically more transparency overall. And I think one more thing, not to forget to mention, but community will be able to represent users in their complaints um, against the platforms. That is also very important. So a bunch of tools. We just need now to wait to see when the DSA becomes fully applicable. Um, platforms, both bigger platforms, but also smaller ones at the beginning of, of next year, when we will need to finally have all the tools in place, when regulators are appointed um, across member states, when the commission is in full capacity, um, it's, it's still a teeny tiny bit time to wait, but we are on the right path there, or we hope we are. Let's see. That's that's good to hear, and it, it feels like it will have some major implications on the community as a whole. Um, but I heard that there might be an exemption for media specifically in the DSA, um, called the media exemption rule, um, which could provide a loophole for media outlets to, I don't know, be out of the DSA. Um, can you tell us a bit about it? What, what happened to it? Um, yeah, so if I can maybe slightly correct you there, there was a discussion about the media exemption in the DSA at the time when it was negotiated. So for the people who maybe don't know exactly what that would mean, just to say it would have legally prohibited platforms from doing any content moderation on the content coming from whoever claiming to be a media. And that was very, very extensively discussed in the DSA, but then in the end rejected by the European Parliament last year and also by the, uh, by the Council as well. Even the European Commission Vice President, Vera Jourova, once called it the, the idea of the media exemption as one of the ideas that can be, and I quote it here, can be put in a box of good intentions leading to hell. Everybody at that time understood 
this is going to be a disaster. It will open the gate to, you know, Europe being flooded by disinformation because we do see a lot of cases of disinformation coming from the top. Um, uh, you know, malicious actors claiming to be legitimate media outlets, but also sometimes um, sort of recognized media outlets where, you know, intentionally or not happens that, you know, disinformation is being put out there. So it was widely understood not to be a good idea, not to pursue it, and rejected in the DSA strongly by the co-legislators. We even had such um, widely well-known figures as, you know, Facebook whistleblower uh, Francis Hogan speaking against it. We had Nobel Peace Prize winner Maria Rassa, who is a journalist herself, also uh, very openly speaking against the media exemption and and the very fact how difficult it would be uh, to define what is media. So essentially, we avoided that in the DSA. But (laughs) um, this was a story for the DSA, and we are seeing... Uh, this this uh, very bad idea resurfacing in other legislative acts in on on the European uh, legislative table. Thanks, Rita. So, what are what where are you seeing it pop up? Where is this idea resurfacing, and does it have the same potential to have positive and negative impacts on on our community as well? Um, yes. So what is currently on the table is the so-called European Media Freedom Act, which essentially has um, a good intention in terms of ensuring that there is media plurality, independence across the union. Because if you, for example, look at the rule of law reports that the commission issue um, every year, you would see virtually in every member state, there are some issues with the media freedom, and you know this is this is to an extent what what the commission with this proposal that came out last year has been trying to address. Now, yes, the media exemption is resurfacing in the European Media Freedom Act. Um, initially, it was called so so called media privilege um, or Article Seventeen dealing with the uh, media content on social media platforms, which had hints of what we have seen in the um, in the media exemption in the DSA, but not the full-blown media exemption as such. What happened in the last few months, it got completely out of hand, if you, if you ask me, both in the council and in the parliament, through amendments, through compromise proposals, introducing wider scope of the article and the stay up obligations that essentially constitute the media exemption. If you look at the text that was proposed in the parliament in the DSA, what is now proposed in the Media Freedom Act, that's that's the media exemption for you. So that's essentially the same thing, the very, very bad idea being brought back through the back door of the European Media Freedom Act. and that, that would have essentially the same effect um, as what we were discussing in the DSA. Um, and actually, potentially, would even undermine the DSA. Because 
the European Media Freedom Act would be considered as a sector-specific legislation and very likely would take priority over the DSA. So the Commission might find it in the end very, very difficult if the, if the media exemption is in there to enforce the DSA um, on the very large online platforms um, to, to comply with their obligations to, to, to moderate content when it comes to systemic risks on, on disinformation. Uh, I mean, we see similar, similar examples in the, uh, for example, the relationship between the DSA and audiovisual media directive. I'm not an expert on that, but my understanding is that in the areas that the directive regulates in, in these specific cases, it takes precedent over DSA. So we might have a same, the same situation with, with the European Media Freedom Act. Um, so that's that's a very very big challenge for the for the community as such, uh, but because again the the same thing would be have seen in the DSA likely even let's say you wouldn't be able to to do a fact checking as such because that could be considered as a content moderation effort, and then all all the work that the community invested throughout the years it would it would it would be void and. Imagine if you give such kind of protection to a media outlet, even if you manage to find a way to restrict it to a limited number of media outlets, which again is not a good idea because potentially you could um, exclude smaller uh, media as such. Um, imagine if that happens. As, a, as somebody who is running disinformation campaigns, right? My ultimate goal then would be, okay, I need to find a way to influence um, to influence the specific media that has protection from any content moderation by the, uh, by the social media platforms. Matt, that's my key goal, and this is what I will be aiming for. This is not a new practice. We know about information laundering and similar practices. It would just accelerate that and, and make it more desirable um, as an outcome. So it's definitely not a good way to go. And, you know, EU Disinfolab, but also a number of other civil society organizations, both because of the uh, risks for disinformation, but also, um, you know, having other arguments when it comes to this, again, very bad idea and the specific provision in, in, the, in Article 17. Um, you know, we are fighting very hard against it um, and trying to to raise awareness about the, you know, the harm and the impact that would have on disinformation, but also on, on, on when it comes to other harmful content it, and even equality of speech, because essentially what this article does, it says that, you know, some speech is more important than other speech. So this speech has to be protected and other not, which is also a very particular approach to take if you ask me from the European institution side. Yeah, ab absolutely. That sounds like a pretty dangerous cocktail. Um, you called it a fight. So what does that fight look like? How, how, and how can we chip in as a community? Um, yes, fight might, might be a, a feisty word, but uh, what we are doing, we are going and talking to legislators. We are talking to members of the parliament, responsible committees, Reporters, shadows, I mean, as long as they want to talk to us, because it's also uh, different uh, different interests and priorities. So we, we are doing outreach um, and uh, talking to 
member states in the council showing evidence, trying to help them to understand that if you force to keep content, as some of the proposals currently are out there for 48 hours, even 24 hours, even if you then are allowed to remove the content after 48 hours, the harm is going to be done. Um, not mentioning that some of the proposals in the parliament now would completely block a possibility to remove any legal content or such um, when it comes to, to whoever, again, claims to be media. So what the community could do, um, I think it would be great if whoever feels that this is important for them would reach out to their permanent representations um, in their member states, to responsible ministries, in most cases, visa culture ministries, and just you know tell them that this is a very dangerous, a very bad idea. Again, that was already rejected by them in the past, and uh, this is not the way to go. And the same way towards the members of the parliament who will be voting on their position on the European Media Freedom Act in the coming months, um, letting them know what the community thinks about it. Because it's slightly hilarious to see so many statements saying how important is the fight against disinformation and how we need to, to invest resources and support the community. And on the other hand, we are not only not funding the community, but also creating legal obstacles um, for the community to, well, legal obstacles for platforms, but also, um, you know, making sure that whatever progress would happen within the DSA, this is not happening because of the, um, of the backdoor in the European Media Freedom Act. So that seems to be of a, of a, of a bit of a strange logic. Yeah, and I also struggle with the idea that that this exemption is made for media as if media as a whole is one kind of unquestionably positive force. And obviously, if there's anything we've seen in our community over the last 10 years is there's a lot of polarization out there. There's a lot of lack of trust around media. So giving one catch-all exemption for for the whole category See, I don't know if it's a little bit naive or not thought through, but it sounds like our community need to to stand up and, and do something about it. Yes, there are ideas how to minimize this exemption for a certain category of media, but none of them are without a risk. Also because um, what I mentioned, it's not only about bogus media. It's also about media, for example, we do know that in countries like in Hungary, the state-backed media is actually pushing forward uh, Russian propaganda. And they would legitimately be exempt from content moderation because they are recognized as proper media under national uh, law. And we, we, I think we have similar controversial outlets that, yes, by the, by the letter, they could call themselves media, um, entitled to that, but then, you know, the content that is being put out there um, sometimes is questionable. So there is no good solution for that. And that's why from the very beginning, when we saw this provision being introduced, we have been saying, look, DSA has enough safeguards for the media. That was a bit of a, you know, 
a conclusion after the discussions in the DSA on the on 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 the media exemption, introducing specific obligations, for example, for for uh, very large online platforms, I think search engines as well, to um, to assess systemic risk when it comes to media plurality, freedom of speech, making sure that you know, um, let's say algorithms are not specifically harming media content. And we are not saying that there are no issues when it comes to, to relationship between media sector and social media. But this is not, Article 17 is not an answer to it. Honestly, we don't think that, you know, the solution cannot be worse than the alleged problem. And again, we have looked into um, impact assessment that the commission provided. We tried to find a comprehensive study that would be able to say that there is a systemic risk of media content over moderation, and that's not the case. Um, it happens in, in certain instances, but when DSA has enough tools that were discussed at length uh, with a good legal language that were designed to address such instances, and you don't need... The, uh, the exemption in, uh, in, in the European Media Freedom Act. You don't need Article 17 um, for, for media as such. Uh, what you need to do, you need to make sure that the DSA is actually working. That will require resources, require uh, cooperation with civil society, and that's something what I'm very confident we can do and then it will also benefit the media sector and it will benefit also smaller media players in the, the measures in the DSA, because again, what's proposed in the European Media Freedom Act seemingly will be benefiting only the very big media players, which again is is not necessarily probably the way we should go. Thanks, Rita. So, if anybody from civil society policymakers who are listening in who are are troubled by what they're hearing or if it resonates with them or they think it's going to have an impact on their community, you suggest contacting their national delegation. Are there any other avenues uh, um, they can yes. explore? Yes, what I mentioned, uh, national delegations, uh, ministries, but also members of a parliament. Um, so I think ev- normally everybody is able to reach uh, their uh, representatives in the parliament. And also, you know, the, the shadows, uh, the, the key rapporteur in the, uh, in the main committee, which is the cult committee, um, opinion committees, uh, Liebe and Nimco committee that do play a role um, in the process. And really just to try to bring as much attention to, to, their, uh, to, to them, but how, how important it is not to allow this loophole to happen and let the DSA work. So, so maybe to, to give our community a sense of urgency here, I'm sure they'll understand why this is important, but also um, what's the timeline on this thing? So both opinion committees and the lead committee put out their opinions and reports. Uh, the amendments also are coming in. We will be discussing to have compromises, Essentially, the position of the lead committee should be finalized and adopted in September. And for now, it's foreseen that the official parliament's opinion um, 
or negotiating mandate should be adopted in the plenary vote in October. So we have a couple of months time of, um, let's say, window of opportunity to influence this process. But then you also know that Parliament goes on a very long uh, summer break, right? So Mm -hmm. essentially half of the summer is out. So it's now. The time is now. (laughs) The time is now, essentially, right? Um, And obviously, we would hope the community would be active also before the plenary vote, uh, contacting MEPs um, and, and, and spreading the message not to make a historically fundamentally damaging mistake when it comes to the work that is being done, when it comes to the potential that we have with the DSA to address some of the key challenges when it comes to disinformation, countering disinformation. Rita, thank you so much for joining us on Zooming In on Hate. I mean, thanks for drawing our attention to this issue, for giving us really clear guidance on it and explaining the situation in a a really, really perspicacious way. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, Well, again, I'm very glad that you actually invited me to to speak on behalf of EU Disinfolab, on behalf of many other organizations. And I can't stress it enough that I'm working extremely hard to fight this. Um, And, and, you know, sort of, I really hope that many more organizations will be joining this fight. Yes, calling it the fight because it is very important and it will affect everybody. And we all want to live in a safer online environment. I think having that opportunity to to, to have safer online environment that the DSA promises. And then it would be very sad to reverse that with the media exemption in the European Media Freedom Act. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, th- thank you so much, Rita. And also thank you to our listeners. Make sure to join the fight by signing up to the EU DisinfoLab newsletter. Make sure to reach out, write letters, emails to your representatives in the parliament, make sure that this um, Media Freedom Act becomes a proper one. And also make sure to subscribe to our mailing list since we're plugging mailing lists today. You can do that at www.eooh.eu. Thanks to Rita, Rita Janoshaite, who works at EU Disinfo Lab as an advocacy coordinator for joining us on Zooming In and Hate today. And while we're thanking, uh, we'd also like to say thanks to the European Commission Rights, Equality and Citizenship Programme by DG Just, who have funded our project EOOH.